our teaching, which has been in the book of Philippians. And we're continuing to study the last teaching section of the book of Philippians. And in it, uh, we're looking at two important themes in the Christian life, two very important themes. The first address is, and this is kind of what we're knee-deep in right now, how to follow Jesus in such a way that we can experience the dynamic nature of the Christian life. And the second, which we will dabble in over these next weeks, but we'll really jump into when we move into section four, chapter four of Philippians, it addresses what it means to be the type of person uh, who experiences Jesus's joy. And it is particularly because they've learned to apply what we're talking about here. They've learned to dwell on the good nature of God in their life. In other words, they're, they're finding joy in Jesus. They are living productive and meaningful lives because they have learned where to fix the attention of their eyes, their ears, and their hearts. And it is truly on the goodness and the grace of Christ. Now, both of these are powerful teachings, and they're given to us by the Apostle Paul. He wrote the book of Philippians. And what's neat about this, as has been true with most of the stuff we study from the Apostle Paul, is this is an area of his life that he has experienced fruit in. He's leading by example. And this is why in our text today, Philippians 3.12, Paul tells us to look at him as an example in both of these areas and how we follow Jesus and experience joy. And in in chapter 4, obviously, how we fix our minds on what is true and right and noble, the things of God. And he tells us to keep our eyes on him, not because he's a proud man, uh, because of things he's done in his own life. This isn't a a self kind of, uh, there's no narcissism here. Let me say this. Paul is really using his life as a conduit. He's saying, follow me because I'm following Jesus. Keep your eyes on those who follow Jesus. Let that be the example in our lives. He tells us to do this because he's done a pretty good job of keeping his eye on Jesus. Following Jesus is what we have been talking about, and it is what we will continue to teach on over these next weeks because it is critical to the Christian life. And if you're here for the first time, or maybe you've been gone for a little bit, there's a strategy we've been using all throughout the book of Philippians to address the the things that Paul is teaching us. Uh, he is really giving us these profound and very terse statements all throughout the book of Philippians. He is pretty regularly giving us like one-liners, and this is sort of a one-liner, super profound statement, and then he moves on to another idea. And what we've done is we've taken these statements, and we're trying to practically apply them. We're trying to spend a little more time in them by turning to the root of where Paul gets these statements from. These are, these are truths that have shaped his life. And so we are bouncing around, and today we're bouncing into, back into, the parable of the sower. What Paul tells us today about following him, keeping our eyes fixed on him, is a teaching, many places, that Jesus gives us this truth. But this is a very profound one in this parable of the sower, the soils, and the gospel of Matthew. This parable is important for our summer study because it gives us a framework to hang everything we'll talk about over these next months on. In the parable of the sower, we learn that one of the keys to following Jesus, deeply experiencing his joy, staying connected to him in vital ways, is our ability to listen and understand Jesus with the ears of our heart. This is what he says. He says, lots of people are seeing, but they're not really seeing. And lots of people are hearing, but they're not really hearing to the point where they understand. And he draws a a very pointed distinction between these two ideas. Because in the ancient world, just like the modern world, there were people who were confused about the difference between hearing something with your ears and understanding something in your heart to the point where it actually changes you, where it does something in you that you become a different person. And so before we proceed, I want to give you a quick refresher, very brief, but a quick one. A parable, since that's what we're studying here, is a story or an analogy meant to reveal a heavy truth through an, a heavenly truth, excuse me, through an earthly reality. Paul is using the common things of the first century world 
to describe the very uncommon ways that God wants the world to function, especially those who are following him. And in this case, Jesus uses a story about farming to help us understand what it means to follow him. And he shows us how central our ability to listen to the word of God is to that task. When Jesus talks about how a seed is hitting soil, what he is talking about is the, the very thing that God has given us to know him very deeply. Lots of tools he's given us. But his scripture is a very primary one, a foundational one. He says, listen, it is important that when you, when you hear this stuff, you actually understand it to the point where you wrestle with it and try to orient your life around it. That's why Jesus says in verse 9, sort of the capstone of this whole teaching, whoever has ears, let them hear. And according to Jesus, there are four kinds of soil. We're looking at the third one today. Soil, or hearts, you might say, in this world that God's truth regularly falls on. And only one of them is truly fruitful. So three weeks ago, we looked at and first learned about the hard path. Some human hearts are like soil that is packed down so hard that God's truth cannot penetrate it meaning they are so resistant, fiercely resistant to the things of God that they have no place for him in their life. Two weeks ago, we looked at the second soil Jesus talks about in verse 5, the shallow, or, uh, the shallow soil or heart. And you might remember the somewhat humorous story I gave you about the cannonball Christian. This is a person who hears about Jesus, jumps into the pool of faith immediately without thinking through anything, counting the cost or recognizing the, the significance of their decision, and much like a shallow planted plant, it, the sun rises, troubles in life come, and it, it's a vapor. Faith just disappears. They're in Jesus on Tuesday and in Mormonism on Friday or something else in life, secularism, whatever it is. They pursue a different ism. It's a, it's a constantly moving uh, puzzle piece in their life. It's here and there and it's everywhere. Today we examine the third soil. And the thorny soil is what we're talking about today. It's about a person trying to follow Jesus with a divided heart. With each soil, there's progressively, you might say, a little more sticking than the last, but still not enough stick to actually have that perseverance that we talked about at the very beginning of this, a permanency in Jesus that can withstand all of the elements of life. And so as we continue on in this summary behind us, let's listen intently with the ears of our hearts and really consider carefully the type of heart we want to have when it comes to how we respond to God's truth. What Jesus is saying here is, think about the way you listen to the words of my Father in heaven and ask yourself on a regular basis, how is it you are or are not responding to them? And this leads me to the only truth I want to share with you this morning. You guys are probably saying this has been like the same point for four weeks, and it is the same point because there's only one main idea here. In this parable, Jesus challenges us to consider the way we respond to God's truth in our everyday lives. And I want to reread a section of Matthew so it's fresh in our minds. Matthew 13, 3 through 8. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. Verse 6, what we're studying today. But when the sun came up, excuse me, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Verse 7 is what we're studying today. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, what we'll talk about next week, where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And so simply put, the third soil here teaches us that we should be careful to not follow Jesus with a divided heart. Weeds and, and a viable crop. That's the analogy Jesus is using here to describe our faith. And in verse 7, Jesus tells us, some seed or truth fell amongst the weeds and the thorns, and it grew up, 
and it, it was choked out, right? This, these healthy plants grew, but eventually were choked out. The life was choked out of them by thorns and thistles. And what he says in verse 22, remember, this is one of the parables where Jesus defines everything he's saying. So if we fast forward to verse 22, he says, this is the person. This is kind of indicative of a person's heart. This is the person who hears God's truth. But then over time, gradually lets the worries of life and the deceit of riches and pleasure. We'll get to that here in a few moments. Choke the life out of their faith and followership of Jesus. In other words, they start really, really strong. And over time, the common things of life begin to chip away at the very uncommon grace God has shown them to the point where it drives them away from Jesus. Now, if you've ever tended a garden or even had a lawn to take care of, you likely know that thorny plants, weeds are very hard to get rid of. And some of them are very sneaky. Sometimes, I've, I've noticed this in my yard, there are things that actually look like real grass but they are not grass. They are, it's imposter grass, weed that looks like grass, but isn't. And you might think, oh, that looks healthy and green, but the truth is it's not. There's a weed there that is subtly undermining the health of the crop you're trying to grow. We have a whole industry in this country that has sprung up around this reality. We have companies like Roundup, you know, it's sort of like the nuclear option for weeds in our yard. They sell these chemicals to us so that we can kill this stuff. A lot of us, especially if you have St. Augustine grass here in Florida, which is the worst grass on earth, it doesn't really, it just is like attracts weeds constantly. Uh, it's unbelievable. We have to hire lawn services, right, to cut our yards and to spray our yards. Otherwise, what happens is, you know, one day your grass looks good and the next day it's like the African Sahara. It's just, there's, there's stuff everywhere. These companies make a fortune selling chemicals to the public in order to aid us in the fight against weeds. So it's a common analogy today. Most of us are not farming, but we live in Florida, and most of us likely have yards. So to truly destroy a weed, a person has to remove them at the root. Pluck a weed and get it at the topsoil, and your weed will be back there in a week. You have to remove it at the root. And so farmers in Jesus' day dealt with this same reality, only they did it on a much larger scale because they were managing entire fields of crops. And their livelihood was dependent on this. You know, eating throughout these seasons and selling this stuff to make a living, this was a, pre a pretty serious problem for them. And so they would often plant their seeds in late fall or winter, which would lie in the fields until the soil warmed up and the spring rains watered the crop. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. When the spring rains came, first fruits popped quickly. But because they were shallow seeds, those grew more quickly. They, they were shallow seeds, but they died very quickly when the sun scorched them because they didn't have a strong enough root. In connection with that, it paralleled with the, that fast-growing early growth, which never makes it, weeds began to grow. But the funny thing about weeds is that unless you examine your grass or your field closely, at the beginning of new growth, it all looks the same. When, uh, when my yard is cut, for two or three days, it all looks good. But around three days or four days, what happens is I notice stuff, stuff grows differently. Stuff is growing more quickly. You can't see the weeds immediately, but they're there. And so as a, as a farmer's crop grows larger, the thorny weeds are easily identified. They start to see what they're growing and then what they don't want to grow. And in left, if left unchecked, in a matter of days, just like in our yards today, thorny weeds can overtake the crop. They can begin to rob the moisture and sunlight that our, our plants need, our grass needs, our crops need to grow. According to Jesus, the problem here with this soil is not that it's shallow or hard, what we've talked about. It's that this is a soil that has a lot of potential. The problem is it's infested with weeds that, if left unchecked, will choke the life out of the good that could grow. That's the key word here. Something really good can grow. But if we let the weeds in life destroy that good crop, 
stuff that we don't want to grow starts growing. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, and we lived in a four-story apartment building, and we never had a lawn. I mean, grass, like, we had pictures of it on our wall. There was nowhere where I lived. It was like an anomaly to us. And when my family moved to Florida in the 90s, they bought their first house. They still live here in New Smyrna. I was down visiting them yesterday, so this story is sort of relevant to me. It's a super small house. It's like 1,000 square feet, and it's got a medium-sized lawn. And I'll never forget the first time I actually cut our grass because that was literally the first time I ever cut anybody's grass. And the story went like this. We were in the house a couple of weeks, and as you all know here, grass grows pretty quickly. In a week, your grass can grow four or five, sometimes six inches during the summer. And so my dad went out to buy a lawnmower, the first one I had ever seen, he said, to, to remedy this issue. And I'll never forget how it was given to me and how I was given my first lesson in mowing the grass. Now, I've, I've talked about my father here before on, on rare occasion, but you have to know something about my father, who I just spent the day with yesterday. Before proceeding, you have to know he is cut from an old-school Italian Brooklyn mold. And that is a nice way of saying uh, he's not much for using words. And when he does use them, they are accompanied, always accompanied, with an immense amount of impatience. That's how he speaks. Everything is frustrating and a mega problem, and the world is going to end. And so he says like five things, and you're like, man, I'm freaking out now. What's going on? That's the way my dad works. So the story I'm telling you, it took place in under 30 seconds. And I was standing in my backyard, and my dad walked up to me with this thing called a lawnmower. And he said, I'm quoting, Anthony, here, the grass needs to be cut. And I looked at him for a moment and processed that, and then intently examined the mower. Because I'm not kidding when I say this was the first time my hands had ever laid hands on a lawnmower. And I, I didn't know what to do with it. And so I observed a few things. First of all, it was, it was silver. That made sense to me. It had a huge handle protruding from it. And it had the word Sears Craftsman written on the side of it. Now pay attention here, because this is the lesson part of the story. And if you blink or breathe, you'll miss it. After looking at the mower, I said to him, okay, uh, how do I use this thing? And my dad looked at me, again I'm quoting, and he said, pull the string and figure, out, figure it out. And then he turned around and he walked away. And as is, as is always, I was like, hey dad, good talk. Nice to, nice to have the dialogue here, you know. It's always meaningful and robust when we talk. He's like six words and move on. And so uh, apparently the mowing lesson had ended at that point, And that was clearly the world's shortest mowing lesson. And I just did what he said. I pulled the string and pressed every lever and figured out what was going on. And within about 45 minutes, I, had, well, I was cutting, cutting grass. Now, today, some 20 years later, I've cut a lot of grass. And over the years, while cutting grass, you start to learn things about grass. I learned things about his grass and eventually mine. I started to notice something, that within a day or two, certain parts of the grass would grow very rapidly. Certain stuff pops up quickly, while the vast majority of the grass grew at a much slower pace. The fast growth is deceiving. In every one of these soils, the fast growth has the high potential to be very deceiving. And here's why. From a distance, my yard, like most yards in Florida, looks lush and green, one that's even cared for. But when you really examine it, despite all of the care, you notice that in more places than you want, there is a secret battle raging between the grass you're trying to grow and the variety of weeds that look like grass that relentlessly grow alongside my grass, trying to snuff the life out of it. A weed is trying to kill stuff to, to live. And as a result, in any lawn, but especially a neglected lawn, or in Jesus's case, a neglected crop, there are parts of it where the weeds, the thistles, the thorns, if they are left unchecked, they will totally overpower the healthy grass and choke the life out of it. Now, this is the faith picture Jesus paints for us with the thorny or the weedy soil. He says, a person with this type of heart will never be able to follow Jesus and experience his joy like Paul speaks about in Philippians. 
because like that grass weed battle, something is happening that you cannot see, at least at the beginning. There is a secret battle raging in, in their hearts, just like the weeds and the grass grow and then you see what's going on. The person here in this soil has a secret uh, battle raging in their hearts for what ultimately controls, wins control over the affections of their heart. Simply put, this is the person who claims to love Jesus. And in some cases, this is very sincere, but also loves a great many other things in their life as much and at times even more than Jesus. It just takes a little time for the newness of faith to wear off before those other things begin to resurface themselves. And consequently, Jesus says this person will never truly experience him the way they were meant to because they're trying to follow him with a deeply divided heart. There are two things trying to grow in life and only one is going to win. And in this particular example, next to God, Jesus tells us they have chosen to let the gods, lowercase g, of everyday life, worry, and wealth define them. All things that I'll say multiple times in and of themselves, worry obviously can, can be a problem, obviously, if left unchecked. But these things are generally not bad things. They are sort of good things. Being aware of things going south in life is a good thing. God gives you, that's called discernment. But what happens then is when you, when you are unable to address that healthily, it becomes a, 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 a phobia, a fear. You can kind of manically be obsessed now by all the things not going right in your life. So each one of these things by themselves, wealth, uh, is not necessarily a bad thing. But if left unchecked, if they become something we love more than God, then what happens is they become weeds that start to detract us from the Lord. And so Jesus uses this weed analogy to caution us. He's, he's giving us this warning to be mindful of the fact that it is entirely possible for the good things that God gives us, for the good things that God wants to grow out of us because he's given us these good things, when he firmly plants his word in our hearts, it is possible that we can invite things into our lives that occupy our minds and dominate our thoughts that then begin to choke the life out of the very faith we once professed. A conflict of interest. And think about the sad nature of the faith picture Jesus paints here for us. This is a person who, unlike the first two soils, actually has great potential to grow something for God. God is in us at this point because his good seed has taken root. God's life-giving truth has taken root in their hearts and it is growing to some degree. However, Jesus says it is what this person does next with their life. After the seed is planted, that dictates whether or not they grow into a maturity in Jesus, in, in imperfect maturity. Keep hear me clearly. I'm not saying that everything is right and perfect, but I'm saying what we do next either migrates us towards growth in Jesus, or it starts to build weeds in our lives. And we start growing weeds that cause us to fall away from Jesus, in part and sometimes in full. And this leads us to a pretty natural question, the the money question for this morning. What does the life of a person whose faith is being grown? in thorny or weedy soil look like? What does this life, what are the, what are the marks or the signs of the weeds once the newness of the, of the lawn being cut wears off? Once the freshness is gone, what are the signs of the weeds? And I just want to deconstruct something before even moving forward. Most people tend to think that this type of attitude is the person who wakes up one day and decides to renounce his or her faith and walk away from Christ. That is too tall of a weed for this, this soil. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. This is more the first soil, the hard soil, where, where at some point belief is just hacked off or it is resisted from the beginning. This is not the soil Jesus speaks of here. This is a, a much more subtle soil. 
This parable example describes a person whose spiritual life starts off very, very strong, but subtly over time gets choked out because they allow a lot of, hear me here, they allow a lot of secondary matters in their life to become primary matters in their life. It's a matter of priority. And sometimes these secondary matters, here's where this gets tricky. You're, you're going to notice when I talk in this section that I'm actually not talking about like the David and Bathsheba types of sin here. That's, that's significant. We can invite stuff in our lives like that that can wreck us, no doubt. But I'm speaking from the angle of, of the more sophisticated attacks that often happen in our lives. The subtle things that really look good on the surface but can be detrimental to us. Sometimes these secondary matters, that's what I want to call them, can even be good things that God gives us. They are by nature really good things that we then turn around and use as reasons to neglect the good seed God has planted in our hearts. And so the ultimate question Jesus poses, uh, proposes to us in this parable, in this section, is this. What kind of growth am I cultivating in my heart? What is it you are growing? What is it you are tending to? And this is an important question to ask because in verse 14, Jesus directly tells us some of the things we invite to grow in our hearts look like healthy blades of grass. They might even start out as healthy blades of grass, but they are actually the common weeds of life. Riches and pleasures that if left unchecked will actually grow into something that, that makes us very far from God, moves us into places that are far from God. And if we let these good things, which we'll talk about in a moment, become ultimate things, they will choke the life out of our faith. And so this person's heart problem, unlike the first two we've identified, this person's heart problem boils down to what they ultimately put their trust in. At the end of the day, after the seed is planted, this person asks the same question over and over again. What do I trust in? Because even though they claim Jesus is Lord and show evidence of that proclamation in their life, stuff is growing. They have a hard time loving Jesus above all else in their life. This is the person who has to learn to repent, not of their disbelief in God. They've already done that. They're not repenting of their sin, ultimately. They've already done that. This is the person that has to repent of the fact that they don't find their ultimate satisfaction in God. God then becomes like one more color on the palette of life, who we refer to on occasion, but he's not actually dominating or driving the picture, the landscape of life. This is not an issue of disbelief. This is an issue of where we find satisfaction. And that's why Jesus uses the word pleasure. Now let me explain. Let me give you some examples. This is the person who lets the everyday matters of life, what I think we can rightly call the common matters of life, have an uncommon power over their physical, spiritual, and emotional health. They let the natural challenges and blessings of things like a job, families, children, relationships, when the Yankees lose, all these things are the normal things in life, right? But they can wreck us if we're not careful. A lot of these things, all of these things I'm, I'm mentioning here, should all rightly be viewed as a gift from God. But if we're not careful, what happens is they become so dominant in our life that they then stress us to the point where we can no longer enjoy them. We can no longer sense the presence of God in them. This is where the good gift starts to grow a weed. Or, many of you in this room are young professionals. I just married two last week. This is common in our area. Young people are getting out of school. They're pursuing careers. Maybe they're in a career that's not their endgame career, and they're praying for a job. They're praying for that job, right? And they finally get that job, the one. And then they become so driven to succeed in it. And hear me, we're not against drive or success here. Those are good things. But what happens is the good thing can become an ultimate thing. They get so driven in succeeding that they gradually decide they no longer have time for the things of God in their life because of it. 
They don't wake up overnight and do this. It's a subtle chipping away. They become less vibrant for Jesus, less engaged, less in love with resting in their God-given identity as a beloved, of child, a beloved child of God because they now have this, this, this problem, this challenge. They have unknowingly equated their ultimate worth in life, not with who Jesus says they are, rather with the level of success they find in their career. And I want to reiterate, we're not against success in a career, but success was never meant to be our God. The same can be said of parents who rightfully see whether you are working two jobs, one job, a stay-at-home, for those of us with kids who rightfully see their God-given job as raising their children, one of their main jobs. This is a noble intention. This is a place we should spend some mental and emotional energy on. But that noble intention can become a weed when the parents start to derive their ultimate joy and worth in life somewhat vicariously through what their kids do or do not achieve. You're no longer living in your own skin in Jesus. You are in tow to what your kids are doing. You, you live through them. That's a challenge. That's a problem. It's going to create a divided heart. Or, maybe rewinding the clock here, it's when a family has that first child or that next child, and the child becomes the absolute reason for their existence. Now hear me. Parenting requires a lot of love, a lot of sacrifice. It's a meaningful venture. But there's a, a subtle shift that takes place where the greatest gift God can give us, one of them anyways, our children, can actually start to breed unhealthy things in our life. What happens is that you have that first child or that next child, and the child now, no longer, you're no longer parenting the kids through the lens of Jesus. The child becomes your absolute reason for your existence. And this is very common today, more common than I've ever seen it in my 20 years pastoring. Gradually over time, parents no longer live to bring the glory of God to their children. Rather, the family now lives to glorify the child, and that changes the whole thing. Because the center of your life changes. Jesus is gently pushed out. No longer guiding life. The kid is. The kids are. And if left unchecked, these amazingly good gifts from God, our children, they can start... No, I'm not saying our kids become weeds. But what I'm saying is, is that attitude... That's a really terrible thing to say. Uh, our, that attitude can actually cause us to have weeds in our heart. And we start to pursue Jesus with a divided heart. This is the person who lets the worries of life ravage them. This, Jesus says, listen, worry. For some people, worry is going to move you away from my Father's grace. You're going to get so freaked out about things in life that you're not going to be able to see God anymore. They say things like, here's the mark of the person who has worry in their life that's ruining them. They say, you know, in the prayer meeting or the community group or in the hallway of coffee, they say, I believe God is in control no matter what happens to me. They know all those verses. And then they go home and they leave this place or they leave their group or they leave the spiritual, you know, framework of the body of Christ. And then they are wrecked when their career moves in an unexpected direction or their bank account runs dry or they have a relationship issue. This is the person who says God is sovereign, but then immediately lets fear and worry define how they see everything going on in their life. They swap lenses. They're no longer seeing life through uh, through, the, through the, the lens of Jesus being Lord. There is a competition in their life. They're worshiping, they're worshiping, in this case, the God of worry, believing that's going to change something, but ultimately we know it doesn't. And what's interesting about all of these examples, and a slew I didn't mention, is there is a great and growing irony in this truth that Jesus teaches us about today. More than ever, it seems like people are praying for God to bless them and provide for them in these daily areas we just spoke about. These are good things to pray for. Here's the problem, though. Uh, at times when God does provide these things, if your heart is in this soil, some of us will then turn around and use those good gifts God has given us to casually walk away from him. He will answer the prayer and we will take that great job or that family or those friends or the successes in our children or our vocation, whatever it is, and we'll turn around and use those to walk away from God. They become the God in life. That's the divided heart. 
So the bottom line here is this is the person who really believes uh, God is real. They do believe this, but they can't seem to trust in him long enough or dwell in him or on him long enough for God to bring peace to their life and their soul. This is the person who above all else, Jesus says, they start living for earthly pleasure, personal pleasure, which is a very common issue in a leisure-centered area like the one we live in. And I want to say something very briefly but important about pleasure because this is sort of the summation of everything Jesus is talking about here, at least in this section of the parable. Although the Bible never says that pleasure is in itself evil, like pleasure is not condemned in the Bible because pleasure is actually, according to God, a gift he's given us. God has created pleasure. There can, however, be forms of pleasure that are unhealthy. There are forms of pleasure that we sort of take what God gives us and then twist them to where they become selfish pleasures. And that's the type of pleasure Jesus speaks of here. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to find meaning in your life. God wants you to find pleasure in all the things I've talked about. But he doesn't want those pleasures to then rob us from the ultimate pleasure we have in life. And that's our pursuit of him. What, what tends to happen here is the spirit of pleasure, that's what I'd like to call it in today's world, is what is questionable. Because it revolves around this insatiable desire to be personally pleased all the time. Contrary, very contrary to the way Jesus lived his life and the way he calls us to live our lives. A great many people on this earth today believe that all the other people on earth were put here on this earth to make you happy. Some people walk around life thinking that. Like they look at the world and say, you exist for me. When Jesus says, no, we should look at the world and say, we exist for him and for the people around us to provide them uh, with, with experiences that really cause them to think about the long-term nature of their life, not necessarily the selfish nature that we can you know, pretty easily migrate into. And the challenge with this is that if you only think about yourself like this, this is the problem with the divided heart. It, it starts to think more about self than it does about Jesus. If you only think about yourself in these areas and the many that are not mentioned today, it doesn't leave any space for you to cultivate a deeper love and pursuit of Jesus. You're not going to want to do that if you're trying to, frankly, cultivate a deeper love and pursuit of yourself. Simply put, you can't ultimately live for your own pleasure and God's pleasure at the same time. You can derive pleasure from living for God's pleasure. Or you can live for your own pleasure at the expense of God's pleasure. But you cannot live for God's pleasure and your pleasure at the same time. At some point, for the, the person who really falls in love with Jesus deeply, God's pleasure becomes your pleasure. And that, depending on where we are in our faith, is going to hit us in different ways. These are divided paths that take you down two entirely different journeys. One serves God, the other serves self. And in all of these good gift from God areas of life, the pursuit of success, whatever form it may be in, uh, you know, life in general is not meant to ruin us and worry us to death. Life is meant to be a gift, this physical life and the life we have with Christ afterwards. It should be something that we derive joy and pleasure from. If these things become ultimate things, they will grow weeds that will eventually cause us to neglect the pursuit of Jesus in three very critical areas. Uh, in, in the pursuit of his truth through his word, which is the primary thing Jesus talks about here, it is very likely when the weeds in life grow that you will start to neglect your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Jesus. You won't have need for them anymore, likely because they sense this in your life and they want you to know about it. And, and what is also common is that you are likely going to start becoming blind to the needs of a suffering world. You can't be concerned about the needs of others, selfless and, uh, selfless and sacrificial service, if we're kind of wired to only serve self. And we've been called to, to experience Jesus and make a difference in all three of those areas. And so these are the major signs of the thorny soil. 
And all these divided heart examples, and the many I didn't mention today, Jesus is saying if there are things in your life that when they go south, they wreck you, they likely have an unhealthy place in your heart because you've likely made them a God in an area of your life where, where that, that title is not to be bestowed. God is the God of life. That's what the, that's what the pursuit of Jesus is meant to, to foster and cultivate in our life, a deeper level of love and pursuit of that. And what's interesting about this, this is true. Anytime we speak about power or Jesus's authority or his promises, uh, you know, if you think about it, there are promises that sort of combat, like, for example, worry. Uh, there, there are promises Jesus gives us. There are benefits, if you will, to seeing Jesus as Lord. You can actually, with honesty, say, I believe, you know, Lord, you, you are in control. And according to Romans, you have the best in store for my life. I might not even get it or agree with it. But if you can actually believe that more deeply than you can your worries, that's going to change the way you see life. And so what's interesting about this is Jesus wants us to know in all of these areas, these things do not have the power to wreck us. They do not have the power to in and of themselves grow weeds. But we can seed power to these things to grow weeds. We can. That's why I used the word earlier. We can invite these things into our life in such a way that we, we cultivate the weed and not the crop God is growing in us. What he's saying here is a true follower must learn to regularly identify and repent of our disbelief in the divided pursuit of God. We can believe in God and then pursue him in different ways. And the bottom line here is there can only be one Lord. It's sort of a return to the profession we make when we say, Jesus, I, you know, I believe who you are and that you love me and care for me and you've died for me. We have to ask God to help us undivide that which is divided in our hearts. And here's how we wrap up by answering a simple question. Why does Jesus want us to do this? Why is there such a, a forceful declaration to avoid the divided heart in this parable and in other places? I mean, this is not the only place the scripture teaches us about a, you know, a heart that's kind of pursuing different affections, one in the camp of God and one outside of it. Why does Jesus want us to do this? I want you to think about this. Because not doing so, it really means that you're choosing to put your hope and trust in, in more of something that's already failed you. It seems pretty reasonable, pretty logical to say, listen, if earthly pleasures... Even the good gifts from God, like success, like relationships, like family. If you enjoy those things, but you, you look at them and you know they, they're not able to give you an unassailable joy in life. They're not able, like, you know, jobs, they can get pretty rough. There's seasons of trouble in that. Relationships can get finicky. They, there's no promise in, in a permanency in joy, at least in the circumstance in, that, in those areas. So it's fair to say that if the circumstance is not meant to dictate our joy, but our understanding of it is what actually creates joy in us, our trust in God through the circumstance, it's pretty fair to say if these things have not been able to give us an unassailable joy in life, okay? If the stuff we have right now hasn't been enough to give us an ultimate happiness in life, then you have to recognize more pleasure, new stuff will never be enough to keep you happy. It's not solving the problem today. And so to dwell in that area, to continue to pursue Jesus in a divided way, just guarantees you'll have the same issue. You'll grow the weed. Or, this is probably the most common one we will all deal with, if worrying about your problems right now, or you're dealing with somebody worrying with their problems, if worrying has yet to solve them, Jesus says this in all of the Gospels, right? then it is a safe bet to say, worrying more will not solve them either. Jesus doesn't say, lo, my children, if you're worrying and it hasn't fixed your problems, worry more, and thou will experience the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that. He tells us to divert our attention, to remove the dividedness of our heart, and to pursue trust, to pursue Jesus, to focus and to dwell on him. 
that changes the way we see circumstances and will likely begin to blunt the sharp edge of worry. These are the weeds dividing the heart, and they oftentimes keep us from God's grace, truth, and promises. They keep Jesus from rooting more deeply in us, which is the whole point of this parable. How do we, get, how do we experience Jesus in more deep and meaningful ways? How does he root in us? Well, it starts by us mentally and emotionally recognizing what he has said. We have to think with our mind, process with our hearts, and then really flesh this out in our lives. We have to ask the questions here that cause us to, really, we have to challenge ourselves in these areas to ask if these are things crippling us, if there are places in our lives where there's a divided heart. And so as we move to response time, please know, each week I close by reminding us that there is both warning and encouragement in this parable for all of us. In each one of these places, Jesus cautions us about something, but then there's, there's a there's a positive something that comes out of the warning. Think about this. A divided heart, much like the other hearts, a divided heart is a common reality in our world and faith. You don't just have to be a Christian to have a divided heart in life. But if you are a Christian, you have to know, while this is a common reality in our world and our faith, it is not the reality God wants for you or for me. He doesn't want us you know, teetering in two or five or ten camps. He wants us focused on him. He wants us following him. And something great happens when we can do that. First of all, you start to recognize the promise here. Why is it that we can pursue Jesus with a whole heart? We just sang about this because we have learned to dwell in his grace. God gave you his son and his truth so you could become a fruit-producing crop. He didn't tell us this stuff so that you could say, the weeds, I want to go that route in life. That's not why he gives us this stuff. He doesn't want your life to look like a, a field of ravaged weeds, uh, ravaged by weeds. That said, though, you have to know, in the farming analogy, to experience this reality, you have to make time. You, you have to cultivate a little bit. You have to take time and make time to cultivate and nurture your spiritual life by studying Jesus' gospel, by getting engaged in community, right? Studying Jesus' gospel means you're in the Word. Next week, we're going to lay out for you guys a Bible reading plan for the summer. It's in process. We're going to put the final touches on it this week. But we want to challenge all of you. I want you to be thinking about this. To read, I want our whole church to read through the scripture in a unified way over the summer. This will last far beyond the summer, but it's certainly going to begin here. We want to call your attention to God's truth in the word. We want you to think about what it means to, to cultivate your life in Christ by getting connected in community, a community group, or just in a more meaningful way, plugging in with other people on the same journey as you. And we also want you all to think about this summer, whether or not you have found and are functioning in your role for Jesus's mission in our world. If you want to know how to really how to have an undivided heart is it is to start pursuing the things of God in more meaningful ways. And what you'll find is once you taste of God's pleasure, it is a pleasure that trumps all pleasure. You, it, that's why I say you can start to experience God's pleasure as your own and his priorities and love and care in the world become your own. There's something really powerful when that happens. And so this morning, as we move into response time, ask God to show you the places in your heart that are divided. Be honest with him about that. He already knows them and we all have them. Let's just go before the Lord and say, Father, where are the places where, where there is major division or the bone and sinew kind of division? They're so subtle we can't even see them yet. But we need the grace of the Holy Spirit to, to communicate these things to us and to point them out. And I want to ask you again, as I've said every week, to, to process this truth with us over these next months by faithfully worshiping with us each week. In this room, if you can't be here, by listening to this stuff online, don't just let this be, you know, 40 minutes in a, in a sermon and you move on. Let this be the kind of thing where we are going to dig deeper into this reality over these next months. And I pray that you will use the other six days of this week to do the same.
The closing section of Philippians is powerful, and it has the ability to deliver the promise that Paul told us in the very first chapter. If we want to know the joy of Jesus, the summary of how we begin to do this takes place in these two chapters. And as you prayerfully do both this morning and throughout this week, ask yourself, when it comes to understanding God's root in your life, what is Jesus saying to you, and what is it that you are going to do about it? Now pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a time of worship. Thank you, God, for a wonderful opportunity to to think through, to pray, and to process what your Son has told us here. It is our prayer this morning that in all areas, we would genuinely focus on you right now. It's somewhat ironically, we live in a pretty busy and distracted world. Some of us will leave this place and life will resume. That can be peaceable for some people and not so peaceable. But what we ask right now is that for these moments we have, start in us a trajectory that allows us to fixate our eyes on you that allows us to dial the ears of our heart into you. Let us listen intently. And I pray, God, that you would have your way in our lives right now, that you would show us, affirm us in the places where, God, we please you in your grace. Show us the places where we have room to grow. And in both of these things, I pray that you would just bathe us in your truth and in your mercy and in your grace. May we see this as a privilege to pursue our Father in heaven. You've invited us into this process. And for many of us in this room, we have, we've accepted that call. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to root in more deeply now as we have this process space. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.